0: Now let's uh, turn back to the passage that we read. First Samuel 17. And in the morning we considered especially the weak response of Israel to the challenge of the Philistines. In verse 24... All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. Or as it's put in verse 11, they were dismayed or literally shattered and broken. But now, uh, tonight, in contrast, we can look at the faith which David had. In verse 32, when he said to Saul, Let no man's heart Fail because of him, that's because of Goliath, your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Let no man's heart fail because of him. Now, our theme uh, today is um, spiritual warfare, in other words, the conflict between uh, God's people of faith and the powers of darkness. That are against them. These powers of darkness. Are of course the devil. And his legions. Of powers and principalities. His uh, demonic army. And of course. The hostile world too. As it's governed. By the power of evil. They become the enemies. Of the Lord's people too. Israel here of course. Represent. The people of God in all ages. So they are the people of God and they represent the people of God in all ages. And in the morning we saw how the church had been fairly recently revived in the days of Samson and especially Samuel, but sad to say, in the years since then there was another declension. And the promised land was falling back into the hands of the enemy, those who didn't love the Lord or honor his name. And they were in gradually enslaving the people of God and taking over their culture, their institutions, their education, and so on. And now the Philistines thought it was time for a full-scale assault on the Church of God, and very often. Although the world itself may not be conscious of what it is doing, the God of this world, who is often behind them, moves the people of the world to launch such a full-scale assault, to take away the liberties of God's people and to take away all that is precious to them and the things that God has appointed to. Sad to say, under Saul the king, the leader the church wanted, and God gave them in his anger, the church has no real resources to meet the Philistine threat. And as we saw in the morning, it is full of fear and paralyzed by it. But of course it doesn't end with that. It never does. Because the scriptures tell us that whenever iniquity comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord raises a standard against it. That doesn't just happen once. Once. Or again, but all the time, it's a principle. When iniquity comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord raises a standard against it. And sometimes we have little awareness of where that standard will be unfurled and by whom. And God is often working behind the scenes when we don't really realize it. The fact of the matter is just that 10 miles down the road from where this battle was taking place Jesse was sending his youngest son out to support the troops particularly the three oldest sons in the family having no idea of the consequences that such an action was to have because the youngest son that he was sending out was the man that God would use to overturn the evil and to re-establish the people of God, giving them more time and more space and renewing them to repentance and to prayer and to fighting in the name of the Lord. Like I say, we we don't know where and how and precisely when God is preparing such a thing. Even if you just go back not many years before this, uh, when again Israel had really backslidden And when the priesthood, the teaching ministry of the church, was being corrupted by the sons of Eli, called Hophni and Phinehas, who were abusing their position uh, with greed, even sleeping with women in the tabernacle. At that very point in time, a woman, Elkanah's wife, who was his second wife, was in anguish of spirit because she was childless and praying for a child. Of course, God took her to the point where she was willing, if she got a child, to give it back to the Lord. There's a principle there too, because sometimes we need to ask for things for the right reason. Famously, Hannah did just that, and she presented this child, Samuel, to the tabernacle. Little did people know in those days that the little boy that was starting out life in the tabernacle would be the means that God would use to turn the nation back to himself. And that's why we need to have hope all the time. That's why we need to have faith all the time, that God is still working. And he is working perhaps even now, we can be sure of it, unknown to ourselves perhaps, maybe even in a place unknown to ourselves perhaps maybe even amongst yourselves, to prepare one or two who will be a huge means of blessing in raising up the standard against the flood of iniquity. And we mustn't think that the flood of iniquity will prevail, because the Lord will prevail. The Lord will have the last word. As we saw this morning, his kingdom is assured of its triumph, and as Christians, we need to remember that. Not to live as a defeated people, But as a victorious people, even when the tide in the battle seems to be going against us. So ten miles down the road, the Lord is preparing things. In the home of a prominent man in Bethlehem by the name of Jesse, whose youngest son is looking after the sheep. Now this man's home uh, had changed a few years before this. And it changed because of a surprise visit from the aged prophet Samuel. And this visit had to be done in secret in case Saul would find out about it. But Samuel asked Jesse to gather all his sons. And when they were all eventually gathered, he proceeded to everyone's surprise to anoint David as king. Pouring the holy anointing oil upon him, he consecrated him to be the next king of Israel. But although that had been done some time ago, the time for actually being a king was not yet. And his duty right now was to continue where he was, looking after a sheep. Now sometimes when uh, God calls us to something, um, we can be surprised that it doesn't happen immediately. Uh, God has his own timetable. And as I've said before, even in the short time since I've been here, one of the hardest things for us to accept is that God has the timetable. And we have to accept it and to be faithful in whatever calling we are in until God moves us along. Now, it was difficult in one way for David to keep looking after sheep when he is conscious that some time back he had been anointed. But but God gave him an encouragement as God often does uh, because Saul of course was becoming regularly depressed and David's well known skill in playing the lute meant that he was actually enlisted into the palace just to play for Saul to relieve uh, Saul's bad mood. It's sad to say nothing would relieve it eventually because the cause of it was fundamentally spiritual. It wasn't a constitutional kind of depression it was brought on because of his rebellion from God and his alienation from God so music was okay for a time but it wouldn't last forever but it did introduce David into the palace and that was God's way of saying to David just bide your time just hold on I know what I've done in anointing you. Uh, look to me and look to my promise and it will certainly come to pass in my way and in my time. I was talking to uh, one of you recently and saying that one of the hardest lessons to learn, it's connected with the timetable, one of the hardest lessons to learn in the Christian life is patience. It is a real virtue, it is a real grace, but we need to learn patience, to accept God's timetable. Now as the standoff in the valley of Elah just drags on Jesse is concerned for his three oldest sons and he sends supplies by the hands of David. And as I hinted at earlier little does David know and little does Jesse know just how significant this message is going to be. And sometimes little things like that can be far more important than we realize. I sometimes think of the young boy, 1,000 years after this, the young boy who left his mother's house one day with five cakes of bread and two pickled fish, little realizing that they would be in the Lord's hands and that the Lord would multiply them, and that he would feed 5,000, that he would be immortalized in all the four Gospels, which all record this one miracle, in many ways the greatest of all the Lord's miracles. So you just never know uh, what God is going to do with even the most apparently insignificant things in our lives. And here David's journey was going to be greatly blessed to himself And to Israel too. Now, when he comes to the valley of Elah, God's timing again, it is just the time when the giant is making his announcement to Israel defying God, defying the armies of the living God. Send a champion, man to man combat. You win, we're your servants. I win, you're our servants. And David, of course sees him coming down the side of the valley and he hears him making the challenge. Now David recognises right away that this is a spiritual challenge and it's a spiritual battle. For him it's not about Philistia or Israel. It's not even about Goliath and himself. It's about God. It's about light and darkness. It's about spiritual truth. Spiritual reality and spiritual wickedness in high places. That's what it's all about to David. As far as he's concerned, this man is defying God. And David is jealous for the name of the Lord. And he's jealous for the cause of the Lord. And God is reigning in David's heart. Even if the rest of the church seemed to be given over to at least partial idolatry. That's not true with this man. He is beloved of God and he is beloved of God for a reason. He was anointed by Samuel for a reason. Because he was, as the scriptures so often tell us, a man after God's own heart. That's what reigned in his heart. He was a man after God's own heart. He sought the approval of God. He sought the love of God. He loved the word of God and the things of God. And because that was so, he was so struck with the evil of what was taking place. A challenge from the powers of darkness that was unanswered by a spineless, weak and lukewarm church. And of course, David knows that spiritual battles Are not won in the way that other battles are won. They're not won by horses and by chariots. God can save by a few as well as saving by many. In God's cause, you don't number horses, you don't number chariots, you don't even number armies. It is simply faith in God, who, as we read in Psalm 46, can break the bow, can break the spear and burn the chariot in fire. See what desolations God makes on the earth when he intervenes. And that's why he called the heathen nations who were so agitated in Psalm 46 to stop and to be still and know that I am God. And David knows that if that power is on your side, well, greater is he that is in you than he who is against you. Even as he says in Psalm 27, suppose hosts were against you. But if that's the real source of our strength, then David knows here that the battle's lost. It's finished. It's finished not because Israel were poorly armed, although they were poorly armed. We saw in the morning that no blacksmith was allowed in the land. That wasn't the reason they were lost. They were lost because they had no faith. They were weak. That's what it is. Some, how it is sometimes in life generally, never, never mind a spiritual battle. We, we learn that the race is not always to the swift and the battle is not always to the strong. Uh, it's in the heart. Things are one in the heart. I remember once when I was taking a group of boys to play a game of football. And all they spoke about in the car on the way there was the opposition because they were playing a a team that was really, really good. And they were speaking about how good the team was and how big their players were and how many goals they scored in every game. And I've seen himself, there's no point stepping onto the pitch. You're finished. <laughs> You're finished before you've even begun. That, that can happen in ordinary worldly things. How much more in the things of God? If we If we think of the enemy and the power of the enemy, and Goliath and the Philistines and their might well what's the point of stepping onto the battlefield none at all and David knows that that's the case that they have lost the battle in their hearts why? because of worldliness and because of prayerlessness as we saw in the morning in the, in the fairly short time since the national revival in the days of Samuel they've just gone down like that Because they wanted what the world had. They wanted a king like the world had. They wanted to be like the world. They wanted to be admired by the world. They wanted to be accepted by the world. And so they become like the world. And they lose the power of God. As perhaps you have yourself. Or maybe you can think of a time when such a thing happened. God forbid, maybe it's even true right now. Or maybe you're even heading sadly in that direction. Where the world suddenly matters so much. And the things of the Lord not so much And it led of course To spiritual weakness And even amongst the best of them Discouragement Discouragement So he speaks out He speaks out And he says This Philistine Is taking um, Is reproaching Israel An uncircumcised Philistine Defying the armies of the living God. And he just brings before them what the real problem is. He says this isn't, a, this isn't just a mismatch he says here. This is, this is not an issue of a powerful army against a weak army. This is evil against good. This is the enemy the enemies of God against God's people. That's what this is. Now, if you raise your voice for God, the world won't be the first in your case. The church will be the first in your case. (laughs) Make no mistake, a sleepy, lukewarm church, a backslidden church, does not like to be confronted with her own sleepiness and lukewarmness. It really does not And in one way or another, the response will come back at you, not from the world, who can actually accept the odd challenge, but the response will come back to you from the church saying, who do you think you are? In some shape or form, that will be the response. Who do you think you are? And it was particularly sad that the first withering blast came from within his own family, where his own older brother says, why did you come down here? And who did you leave the few sheep that you look after in the wilderness with? And I know the insolence of your heart. You're just here to see the battle. How patronizing and and how demoralizing. And it's amazing the way that you can be spoken to by somebody that you've actually come to help. Somebody that you've come alongside to stand in the trenches with and they can turn around and just throw that kind of thing at you. It's so demeaning for that to be publicly said, really, to David when he had just come with the gifts from his father for the sustenance of his own brothers. But David just gives a simple and a noble answer. What have I done? He says, Is there not a cause? Verse 29. What have I done now? And is there not a cause? Well, is there not a cause? Is there not a fight here to be fought? Is there not an issue here that needs resolution? Is there not something to fight for? Is there not someone to fight for? Is this not God's battle that we're enlisted in? Is God not expecting us to do something about this situation where the tide is going out and unbelief is coming in and the enemies of God are gaining an ascendancy and an upper hand? As can happen in our culture, in our island, in our nation, in our home, in our lives, in our families. When evil starts to come in like a flood, is it not time? Is there not a cause? If we can't fight for God, David is saying, who are we anyway? If we can't fight the Lord's battle, then how are we different from the Philistines in the first place? And why should we call ourselves Christians if we can't stand for Christ? If we can't speak, on, speak up on his behalf? If we can't stand beside him? If we're not fearless enough to own ourselves to be Christians and to be different and to be mocked and ridiculed for being different, why call ourselves Christians? Make no mistake, all of us, We need, in our churches and in the world in which we live, we we need to identify with our Saviour. We need to go outside the camp. We need to bear his reproach. We need to stand up for Christ's honour. We need to stand up for Christ's worship. We need to stand up for the discipline of his house. We need to stand up for everything that matters to God because that's what should matter to us if we carry his name. So, David recognizes the true nature of the warfare. But then again, you'll notice that he's willing to fight for it. The Bible tells us that the words that he spoke to his brothers, he spoke them to other people, he went around saying them that this is a, a spiritual conflict that needs fighting. And so the word eventually percolates to the king. Saul sends a message that he wants to see David. And David simply appears in front of him and he says Let no one's heart be afraid Shattered, shocked or terrified because of this he says I'll go out and I'll fight the Philistine Saul doesn't want him to go At this point Saul holds no grudge against David No resentment that would come later on When David got more praise than he got himself At this point he probably liked him He was the musician who made his bad moods go away. Saul was concerned that David wasn't a proven soldier. He would have done exercises, things equivalent to our... uh, uh, What was it called in the past? I've forgotten it. When young men went to national service, that kind of thing. He would have learned things of that kind, but he was no proven soldier. And he tries to dissuade him. But David is set on the confrontation. He already knows that he's not going to look to anybody else to do it. He'll do it himself. The first thing he does is he rejects worldly armour, which is symbolised by the armour that Saul clothes him with in verse 38. Saul insists that David wears his armour, his bronze helmet, and his coat of mail David moves in them for a little while and then he politely refuses he says he hasn't proved it he hasn't tested it Um, that's his way of saying that he doesn't really want to use it it's a polite way I suppose of speaking to the king sometimes in children's picture books you see the picture of a little boy with an adult's uh, armour on him Picture books get these things wrong. The the David that fought Goliath wasn't a boy; he was a young man, about eighteen years of age. He was tall enough. We're told he was handsome in appearance. He was a well-built man. It's not a problem with the armor. It's just that he wasn't comfortable in the armor because it's not for him. He knows that he's not going to fight this battle with Saul's armor. To him, that is symbolic. To us it's symbolic too. He'll fight this battle the way that God wants him to fight the battle. And he'll fight it with the resources that God gives to himself. Not worldly strength. Saul's armour represents worldly strategies, human cunning, um, all these things that belong to the world. Political intrigue, all that kind of thing. No, he says, I'll go as I am. He's got a simple staff and he's got a sling, which we'll come to in a minute, a pouch with two cords attached to it. That's all that he's going to take to the battle. It's interesting, you know, that as he goes down the valley uh, where he's going to meet with the Philistine because they're encamped on one side of the slope, Israel on the other side. As he makes his way down to the valley, Saul watches him going. And Saul calls his commander-in-chief, Abner, over, and he says, whose son is this boy? Now, some people say there's a contradiction here in the Bible because a previous chapter has introduced David, the musician, playing to Saul. There's no contradiction. Saul is not asking who he is. Saul is asking who his father is. The simple reason for that is because Saul had promised that whoever wins this conflict uh, will be exempt from taxes and uh, will have his eldest daughter's hand in marriage. And it's only reasonable that he should ask, who's his father? Where exactly does it come from? I can't help but wonder when he asks that if Saul has a strange sense that this young man is going to win and not lose um, and that's even though the Lord has left himself the Lord has left himself and a distressing spirit is distressing his soul but there's something you know sometimes even when a person is drifting away from God sometimes there's an impression made upon them have you ever felt that yourself uh, just somebody makes an impression upon you in that character, in that bearing or in the words that they speak and you feel that God's with them. You just know that God is with them and you can't help but feel that Saul is aware of that. And he makes the inquiry while he's on his way out to meet the giant as much as to say, well, he's going to win, you know. Although it doesn't look like it to anybody else. He's going to win. I wonder even if there's a measure of regret or remorse in Saul, that, that he himself as a young man looked like that, that he himself was somebody who perhaps could have slain the giant, but he's now far from that himself. It's a sad thing, you know, if, if you feel regret rather than repentance. Regret is a really negative emotion. Hell is full of it. So sadly is the world full of it, but hell is really full of it. And if you sometimes look back wistfully or longingly at what might have been and what could have been, I want you by the grace of God to turn that into something far more positive and to recognize that however far advanced you are in life, it's not too late to change, it's not too late to begin again, and instead of the bitterness of regret, to have the sweetness of repentance and to watch how God restores years that the locust has eaten, And just vanished away. Sad to say Saul did none of that. But I think there's a testimony here to his conscience. That God is with the young man. In a way that he's no longer with himself. So David goes down to the battle. Rejecting the world's armor. But he still prepares himself with his own armor. That armor Is partly physical because it has to be, but it's primarily spiritual. As he says himself to the giant when he meets him, You're coming to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, i.e., the world's armor, but I'm coming to you. He doesn't say with a sling, although that's all he's got. He says, I'm coming to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. And that there means in his power, by his authority. I am coming to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. He's trusting in God's power. He knows it's a real thing. He doesn't talk about it as an armchair theologian would speak about it. He talks about it as someone who's experienced it in in his own life. He knew that the land, uh, which was partly occupied by Philistines originally, he knew it wasn't one by Israel's power and by their might, but by God's right arm and by the favour of his countenance. As Psalm 44 so vividly put before us, he knows that God changes things. And as well he remembers how God helped himself in the past. He thinks of himself as a young shepherd when a lion at one time and a bear at another time attacked the flock and he delivered the flock from their mouths. With the help of God. He, he knew then that God had helped him. Helped him defeat powers that were greater naturally than himself. And he now looks at that and he feeds off that past in the present. As so faith should always do. Should always go back to points and situations and events in the past. And say, well you did that then. And therefore you will do this for me now. You have not changed. Your promises are still yea and amen in Christ. So these things were preparations for me. These things were there then for my help now. The Lord delivered me then, that's what he says to Saul, and so the Lord will deliver me now. But he doesn't despise the simple means that God has put into his hands of the sling and the stones which he uses as a shepherd to put away the wolves this is the weapon of the poor as far as I could understand and it was looked down upon as a weapon although it could be really effective Um, for example the Benjamites had an elite corps of 700 men who were all left handed uh, who could use the sling at a distance and aim it so as to be accurate within a hair's breadth. An elite core of 700. Some people say that left-handed men are, are more precise. I don't know. Maybe there was just an abundance of left-handed men. in B- Benjamin, some people say that it was useful to have people uh, who, who were left-handed in battle because they could sometimes surprise people who are more used to the other side, just as you sometimes find in sport. It's more awkward to combat left-handers I don't know. All we know is that they had an elite core of 700 slingers. David is able to sling himself within a hair's breadth, But it's still the poor man's weapon. And I wonder if in that respect, it functions a bit like the jawbone of the donkey that Samson used to defeat the Philistines earlier. God taking the foolish things of this world. Sometimes the poor and the mocked, and the downtrodden and the destitute and he makes them put to shame those who are wise and more substantial in the eyes of the world so he gives him the poor man's weapon but just as David worked with the loot to become one of the best players in the country so he practiced with the weapon that God had given him and he took it into the battle against the Philistines but his real weapon is faith and as he walks down to the bottom of the valley uh, there's a little brook that runs through the bottom and he stoops down and he picks up five smooth stones people wonder why five and sometimes people wonder if it represents five graces and things like that I don't think these Speculations are helpful because he only uses one stone. If these five stones represented graces, they would somehow all be used. I think it's simply the matter that five was all that his pouch could carry. These stones would be large, and they would be smooth. Large for power, smooth for flight. He wanted it to fly through and straight. And then he makes his way towards Goliath, who's who's probably gone part way back up his side of the slope, and he hears the noise and the agitation, because after 40 days, he hears someone at last appearing, and he turns around, and he's furious, absolutely furious. Why? Because he feels insulted. He is personally insulted that from the ranks of the Israelites, they've sent someone that he considers to be a boy Not a warrior, that's a match for himself, but just a boy to be swatted aside and to be annihilated. It's a disgrace for Israel, and so in some ways it is. But it's a a personal affront to himself, and he unleashes a torrent of venom at David. He looks at the staff in his hand and says, Am I some kind of dog that you're coming to me with a a little stick? And he looks at David himself and notices him to be ruddy and good-looking. Um, healthy countenance and good looking. There's, there's a spiritual allusion there to the one who is ruddy and good looking, uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, the Anointed King of all. And when he looks at David, he curses him in the name of all his own gods. Oh, Goliath, you'd have been far better shutting up and not mentioning your gods, and bringing your gods into it there's something about doing such a thing that provokes the Lord even more. Such as when people blaspheme his name or when they elevate things onto that high spiritual plane and openly defy God in the name of their own gods, it it ups the ante, as they say, and it signed its own death warrant. David, on his part, you're coming to me, he says, with military mind. You've got your javelin and your spear. I'm simply coming in the name and in the power of God. And I'll tell you what he says. I'll cut your head off when this is finished. And the carcasses of your army shall be fed on by the birds of the air and by the beasts of the field. And David says there'll be two results from that. Number one, Everybody here will know that there is a God who who lives. And number two, the assembly will know. The assembly will know. That's the expression that he uses. Uh, The assembly will know um, that the Lord does not save with sword and spear because the battle is the Lord's. The assembly, an interesting word. It's the word congregation it's as though David is saying everybody here is going to know that there's a God but the congregation behind him, the people of God he says, will know that spears and swords are not necessary all that is necessary is faith in the living and true God to do the work of God in this land to put unbelief to flight, to turn people from darkness to life faith In the living and true God, the assembly will know that. As for everyone else, they'll know there's a God in Israel. Sometimes, you know, when we live with weakness like that, we long for God to reveal himself in such a way as to make people be in no doubt that there is a God. Elijah was like that when he was on top of Mount Carmel. He asked God to send fire so that the people would know there was a God still in Israel. Because Elijah knows that looking at the state of the church, it looked as though there was no God. Send fire that they would know. Well, David's saying the same here. When this combat is over, they're all going to know that there's a God in Israel. And Goliath is mad by this time. And he surges forward with all his weight, with the weight of his mail, with the weight of his armor. David takes a stone and he places it in his sling and he swings it and on one level of course it's a high risk strategy because if he misses there's no plan B as they say on another level there's no risk at all involved absolutely none because he's gone out in the strength and in the power of God and when you do such a thing the strength and the power of God is yours he did his own part He worked at his skill. And when he slung the shot, he believed that God would guide it. And that's not beyond God, is it? The one who keeps the earth in orbit and the galaxies in their orbits is not going to stumble at directing a stone. We always take aim, but God guides I take aim when I'm preaching at you tonight, but God will guide my words to your conscience, as he alone is able to do. He'll guide it bound to your heart, because he's able to do that. And the Lord guided this stone. In Greek mythology, um, if you're familiar with it at all, you'll remember Achilles, uh, who was dipped in the river Styx uh, by his mother, who held him at the time by his heel, so when he came out of the river styx uh, nobody could kill him he he was immortal except for his heel which of course is where the expression the achilles heel comes from and paris shot the arrow that was guided by apollos the god apollos of course so called to his heel that's mythology this is history This is the god who guided the arrow that was shot at random from Jehoshaphat's army and which which just found the weak spot in Ahab's armour. This one finds the only chink in Goliath's, which is the forehead. And this heavy stone, shot at, shall we just say, round about 100 miles per hour, just sinks into Goliath's forehead. The momentum of the man coming downhill still took him forward so that he fell on his face but he was a dying man because the stone shattered his skull and went into his brain because the seed of the woman must conquer the seed of the serpent. He will crush the Messiah's heel but the Messiah shall crush his head. And that's being prefigured in this context, contest here, a thousand years before the time. The primary reason for falling on his face is because, at the end of the day, that's what the Philistine God did, Dagon, when the Ark of the Covenant was taken into the Philistine Temple in supposed triumph for the Philistines in the morning. They saw that the god Dagon had fallen on its face before the ark. Here is a symbol of every knee bowing, as I mentioned in the morning, and every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Strangely, he doesn't get one death blow, but two. The stone was enough to kill him, and he was lying there, dying. But actually, David took his own sword and killed him with his own sword. Again, a lesson in that. The Philistine sword destroys the Philistine. Just as Christ took the weapon of death and turned it against the one who had the power of death. It was through death that death was destroyed. (coughs) There's a famous book by John Owen called The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. The death of Christ was the death of death for the people of God. So he takes the cross, the symbol of death, the power of the evil one, and he wields the weapon against himself. How fitting that Goliath should perish with his own sword. And David takes the head to Jerusalem, where the church will be. And the church will see that the head of principalities and powers is finished. but Satan is a defeated foe and that will preach to them always. My time has completely gone and past Mm -hmm. it but I just leave you really to see Christ in all this. See Christ sent by his Father willingly coming coming to a church that will not receive him but Mm -hmm. zeal for the Lord's house consumes him He rejects himself to use a sword in his own battle but he will fight the good fight of faith and on the cross he will defeat the power of evil and he will spoil principalities and powers. It's no surprise that all of a sudden Israel is like a people awoken from sleep. It's like they see immediately what can be done and what faith can attain to. And there's a certain shout and the demoralized people just rise up and the Philistines begin to flee and the battle becomes the Lord's battle. A battle that he wins and prevails in. Friends, the lesson of all this, well there's many lessons, surely. Surely many, many lessons. But the primary one to ourselves is our need to believe we need to trust. We need to start acting as though God is real because He is. And to watch how the world will respond to real faith in Christian lives. Let's uh, call on God's name and pray. O Lord, our oh God, uh, we. Bless your name for your long-suffering with us, for your mercy and for your patience, even in the light of our impatience and our frequent failures. We confess that often our faith flickers very weak and sometimes our love grows cold Uh, but how much greater the reason to bless you that you stir these embers into renewed flame and you quicken us into real zeal again for the Lord and you stir up faith to lay hold upon your power and might. And uh, we pray therefore that when we call upon you that you would now answer And that you would reveal yourself As the God who saves And help us not to bemoan weakness in others But to make sure that we ourselves Are where we ought to be That we ourselves are in the word of God That we ourselves are at the throne of grace That we ourselves put on the spiritual armour Every single day That we might be found standing In Christ's name we pray. Amen. (coughs) Let's close our worship singing again in Psalm 33. And at verse 13. Psalm 33 at verse (coughs) 13. (coughs) The Lord from heaven sees and beholds all sons of men full well. He views all from his dwelling place that in the earth do dwell. He forms their hearts alike, and all their doings he observes. Great hosts save not a king. Much strength no mighty man preserves. A horse for preservation is a deceitful thing, and by the greatness of his strength can no deliverance bring. Behold, on those that do him fear, the Lord doth set his eye, even those who, on his mercy, do with confidence rely. These four stanzas, 13 to 18. We stand to sing. The Lord from heaven, sees and beholds the men the mighty country man- of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.